I'm going to take a larger chunk than usual, and the main reason is that I, I, I kind of wanted to point out some things uh, within the Scripture itself. Uh, because when, when you study the Bible, it's helpful to identify patterns within uh, the Bible when you're reading it. And in our text this evening, verses 1 through 36, actually going to break it up into six different sections. And so three of those sections are going to address who Jesus is, and then the other three are going to address uh, who a disciple is or what a disciple is. So section 1, verses 1 through 6, that's the first section. This has to, deal, this has to do with sending the 12. And then section 2 is in verses 7 through 9, where we, we are given this question um, from Herod, and it's a question that Herod has as to who Jesus is. Verses 10 through 17, we have... We have uh, section 3, which is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then in section 4, um, we're, we're, it's in verses 18 through 22, and we're given another question. But this time it's Jesus asking the question, and he's asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then in section 5, uh, we have uh, verses 23 through 27. And Jesus explains to his disciple what a disciple is and the cost of that discipleship. And then finally, section 6 verses 28 through 36, it's back to who Jesus is again. And actually, this one isn't in the form of a question, but this is actually in the form of a statement where God the Father is speaking, and He's saying that this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Now let's combine all these sections and look for commonalities within these sections, and we're going to divide them into two groupings. One of the groupings is who is Jesus. The other grouping is who is a disciple. And so if we combine sections 1, 3, and 5 into a grouping, this is going to tell us who a disciple is in reading that text. And then if we combine sections 2, 4, and 6 into another common grouping, this is going to tell us who Jesus is. So the grouping is, who is Jesus? So for our study this evening, let's first take a look at this, sections 2, 4, and 6, to lay a foundation for us, who is Jesus? Because I think if we find that out, it's going to help us figure out who is a disciple. So, if I've lost you already, I can start over. But no, let's just, I'm just going to go along. Hopefully, it makes more sense as we go along. So let's first unpack who is Jesus. And so we have to go to section 2, verses 7 through 9. Let me read that. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now Herod's question in verse 9 kind of encapsulates this entire section here, verses 7 through 9. And he says, says, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Now, before we get into this question, who is Herod the Tetrarch? Herod the Tetrarch is not the same Herod that we read about in Luke chapter 1 that got freaked out because he heard about this story and he went and killed all the babies in Bethlehem that were under two years old and then he got duped by some wise men and he gets upset. That's not this Herod. Herod the Tetrarch is the son of Herod the Great. So that Herod from Luke chapter 1, he's dead and this is his son. So what we find here in verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great, he was perplexed because some were saying that John the Baptist raised from the dead. So it's John of the dead, who's a distant relative of Sean of the dead, 
but it's John of the dead. And so, but Herod's kind of perplexed because he's saying, you know, I, I, I killed that guy. I beheaded that guy. And so he's wondering about whom I hear such things about. So he's perplexed at what's being said, what's being done by Jesus and his followers. And this is kind of weird to him, kind of freaky to him. Now, why is that so? Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 14, 1 through 11, what happened there? John the Baptist is calling Herod out on his affair with his sister-in-law. And so his niece performs this hoochie dance for him. And he's willing to do whatever she wants him to do. So she goes and she asks her mom, Mom, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to ask Uncle Herod to do? And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so that's, that's where this reference of John the Baptist is coming out. One of the rumors is that John of the Dead was out and about, and like, what's going on here, right, in verse 7. And then another rumor was that it was Elijah, verse 8. And then another rumor was that it was some other prophets of old, verse 8 also. So Herod questioned, who is this about whom I hear such things? All these different rumors floating about. And as the Bible is being taught, and, and you're exploring what it means to know more about God, there are some of you who have this very question going through your head. Who is this about whom I hear such things? All of us have a spiritual side. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you have one. And there are some of us who may choose to ignore it, but we all have one. And Herod definitely had one. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 20, we'll read of Herod's interest in spiritual things reads this, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod kept him safe, even though he feared him. And what he heard from John kind of confused him, but he liked listening to him. He enjoyed listening to him. John didn't sugarcoat anything towards Herod. He let him have it. He challenged Herod on his views of life, on his, on his views of faith, on his views of uh, values and destiny and all this kind of stuff. But Herod heard all this stuff, and he heard him gladly. Perhaps this is you. You haven't fully come to the conclusion about who Jesus is in your life, and you've heard the Bible taught here, and it's kind of perplexing, and you actually kind of like to listen. And I know that you're out there because we've corresponded and I'm sure that there are others out there that we just haven't been in contact yet. And if you feel like I'm talking directly to you, oh, he's re- revealing the, the correspondence we've had, there's actually more than one of you. So you can be at peace that there's more than one of you out there. And I'm actually really glad that you're here and continuing to do here. So here you are, you're perplexed, and you like to listen, and you have asked these questions about who Jesus is. Now, there are many who are perplexed about Jesus, who like to listen to the things about Jesus, yet they aren't following Jesus. And it's as if people like to discuss the things about Jesus, to gain knowledge about Jesus, but they don't want to live the things of Jesus. Now, here's a word of caution. Be careful about just keeping the talk and the knowledge in your head. That it doesn't go further than that. That all you do is talk about it and all you do is accumulate knowledge, but you don't practice what you're learning or what's in your head or what you're talking about. And I find this especially interesting when it comes to politics. I know a lot of people, some of which are in my family, who love to discuss politics. They love it. They even know a lot about it because they listen to a lot of radio. So they, they know a lot about it. 
But when it comes to living it out, it's actually a joke. I hear things like this. We have to keep the jobs in the United States. Why are we, why are we farming out all these jobs to other countries? We need the jobs here. But they shop at Walmart. And the last time I checked, when I turned over a thing in Walmart where it was made, it's usually not in the U.S. I, I can't say that none of it is because I haven't flipped over everything. But I'm willing to bet some money that 9 out of 10? I don't, know, I don't know the stat. I just know that most of it is not. And so they want to do this. They, and, and I don't want to go into a debate about politics. But what I'm saying is that there is some serious hypocrisy between what people talk about, what they discuss, and what they actually know, and what they want to talk about from what, what, what they know. But they don't practice what they know or what they talk about. And so let's get back to our text here and see how, how this is happening. At the end of chapter 9, verse 9, it reads, And he, Herod, sought to see him. Keep your finger there, and let's fast forward to Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 9. Let me read that to you. And when he, Pilate, learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Now you see why Herod was so glad to meet Jesus? Because of where you kept your finger. Luke chapter 9, verse 9. Where he sought him. And now we're in chapter 23, and Jesus is right before Herod. Now, the question I have is, how much time has passed here before Herod actually met Jesus face to face, even though there was much discussion about him and he sought him in verse 9, but how did he really seek him? Was it seeking him through discussion? Was it seeking him through gaining more knowledge about him? How much time elapsed there? A couple years? A couple years and some months? Whatever it was, it was quite a sufficient amount of time. Now, the interesting thing is, this is Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler. If a woman, a hemorrhaging woman from Caesarea Philippi can find Jesus in Capernaum, don't you think Herod the ruler can find Jesus pretty easily? If he really wanted to meet Jesus, couldn't he do that? But he was content to just discuss things about Jesus. To just gain knowledge about Jesus. But he wasn't interested in living like Jesus. Now you notice in Luke chapter 23 verse 8 that Herod was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, how many of us are like this? We don't really want a relationship with Jesus. We just want to see him do something for us. If you, Jesus, do something for me, then... Maybe I'll believe in you, or maybe, I, but I need you to show me something. I need you to show me a sign. And unless Jesus does something miraculous for me, I'm just not that interested. And yet he did do something miraculous for you. Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. So for us to think that, oh, he hasn't done anything for me. I need something for him to do. He actually has. Whether you know it or not, he did do that for you. So that you can be presentable to a holy God, that you are presented righteous before a holy God because 
his death, his blood, which that communion there symbolizes, that grape juice, covers you so that when he looks at you, you are looked upon as righteous. Because we're told that the wages of sin is death. But because of Christ's death covering you, you do not have to experience that. Now, Herod had the same opportunity to acknowledge who Jesus is. Right? He knew it in his head. He had many discussions. He sought him, right? Chapter 9, verse 9. He had a lot of people around him. He had all these Jewish people around him. He had all these folks. He had a lot of knowledge, but it just wasn't inside of his heart. And in fact, Luke chapter 23, verse 11 shows us what really was in his heart. It reads this. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now, how does a man go from being really glad to seeing Jesus, wanting to talk to Jesus, and he long desired to see him and hoped to see a miracle from him, to being this spiteful and malicious guy? How does someone transition to that? This is a heart issue. This is a problem with his heart. He has a heart problem. And so Herod's heart is hardened towards the things of God. And sure, he had a ton of questions. He wanted to talk to Jesus about things. But what happened in chapter 23, verse 9? Jesus makes no answer. Jesus is absolutely silent. For me, this is extremely scary. That if I was in the face of Jesus, and I was asking him these questions, and he doesn't answer me, would that be scary to you? God of the universe, I have these questions for you, and you're not going to answer them. You're, you're just going to be quiet. Nothing for me. Jesus doesn't answer. Herod actually has had plenty of chances throughout his life. A few years before this moment in time in Luke chapter 23, he had some of the most godly people speaking in his life. One of those people, John the Baptist. I don't know how much more clear one can be in terms of the forgiveness of sins or the kingdom of God than John the Baptist. Jesus' very own cousin doesn't sugarcoat a thing and we can read from the earlier parts of Luke how John the Baptist was and you can't get a clearer message than that. But Herod rejected it. He liked it. He was glad to hear it. But he rejected it really. It didn't transform him. He just kind of gained that knowledge. And here, he, here Jesus is right before him and Jesus is absolutely silent. This is scary. This is scary for some who are here because maybe you find yourself in the same place we find Herod. I don't know. And some of you have heard about Jesus for quite a while. But you're like Herod in that you're preoccupied with other things. You're busy with your own kingdom. You don't want to do anything outside of your own kingdom. Not even look at God's kingdom. You're too busy with your own. And maybe you're convinced that there will be a day that you know, I, I can flip that switch when the time comes. I can flip that switch to ask Jesus the questions I want when I'm before him, and we'll just deal with it then. What if you find him silent? What if you wait until that time and you find him silent? Because by the time you get to the point where Jesus is right in front of you, he might be silent. Because what more can Jesus say to you than has already been said in his word? The Bible says it for Jesus. And so, so for some of us, we're just so self-absorbed, we're so narcissistic to think that God answers to us. By God's grace, God answers us, but he, God never answers to us. And we know that God 
is loving. We know that Jesus reaches out to individuals that are on the outskirts like, like a hemorrhaging woman. He even reaches towards people that are on the inside like Jairus. And yet here we find him silent to Herod. Now if there's one thing to take away from this message, it's this. Don't harden your heart towards God when he's speaking to you. Don't do that. The more that you do that, the more calluses you're going to develop. So that when he's talking to you, you will not be able to receive. And so you don't want to ignore that when when God is speaking to you. Because the more that you do that, the harder your heart gets. The longer you do that, the more you procrastinate for when God speaks to you in your heart, the higher the likelihood of silence. Because there are no guarantees that you are going to hear from God again. Any one of us can walk outside that door and not be here anymore. There are no guarantees. Luke chapter 9, verse 25, it reads, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now let's continue with the second grouping, who is Jesus? We're going to go to section 4, it's verses 18 through 22. And so we're going to go from Herod's question to a question that Jesus has for his disciples. Verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus asked his disciples about what the crowds say out there. What what are they saying on the street? And what you'll find interesting is it's not that much different from what's being said in Jerusalem. It's not that different from what's being said to Herod and the people that Herod was questioning in those crowds. The answers are pretty much the same. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're some other prophet that's risen. And so the word on the street, it's the same. Now, the question for us is, have we compromised who Jesus really is? Have we made him like diet Jesus or Jesus light, you know? Have, we, have, we, have, have the convictions of who Jesus really is, has that waned in our life? Have we started calling unholy things holy and holy things unholy? Have we compromised the truth and the reality of the Bible and us kind of manipulating the Bible to kind of fit our culture, to fit our society, to fit our kind of mindset and our value and our beliefs without acknowledging the worldview of Jesus? Now, the majority of the people believed Jesus was someone else. When you went on the main street and he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And Herod's wondering, like, who do those people say that Jesus is? What are the answers out there, the majority? The majority is that Jesus is someone else. Jesus is John the Baptist. Jesus is Elijah. Jesus is some other prophet. And it's interesting because it's in the minority that believe Jesus and that who he claimed to be. It's in that minority. It's in the disciples that they believe Jesus. Peter said, you're the Christ. That it's in the minority. And it's, it, it's how it was back then. It's how it is now. It's the same thing that Paul dealt with in Athens. 
When you go to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34, Paul has this beautiful type of apologetic. He goes into the Areopagus, the Pantheon, and he notices that there's an altar there to the unknown God. And so he, he, he automatically thinks, culturally, I'm going to nail this. I know this culture. I am so smart. I am Paul. And he presents this beautiful dissertation about how Jesus is the unknown God. And how you guys kind of like, you know, you've kind of missed the mark. And, you know, all these things you guys are looking for, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And, and he gives this beautiful, these beautiful words as to what, what, who God is and who Jesus is and what happens. Some people mocked him at the end of that. A few people followed him. The majority leave unchanged. And so the Areopagus had a place for Jesus. It had an altar, it says the unknown God. But like the rest of the altars there, which were many, I don't know exactly how many, hundreds, there were many, that Jesus was just one of them. Jesus was just one of those gods out of the many in this entire pantheon. Now the face of pluralism hasn't changed all that much, has it? That it's, it's such an easier, much easier path to join the perplexed of the majority than to join the enlightened of the minority. The enlightened, like Peter, you're the Christ. How that is so much harder than this group of people saying, oh, you're foolish, what an idiot. Like, look at all these gods. If I was that one, then come on, guys, let's get out of here. But it's either Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, or he is not. It's not something that can be true for me and not true for someone else. Because I hear this all the time. That is so great for you, and that's so true for you, but it's not true for me. But isn't truth truth? So either it's truth or it's not truth. How can it be true for me, but not true for you? How can 2 plus 2 be true for me, but it's not true for you? 2 plus 2 for me is 4. But for you, it's 5. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. It's either true or it's not true. And so to say that all religions are the same, it makes no sense. Let's just take all the major world religions as an example. Let's not take every single thing out there, but let's just take the major world religions. Do you know that they are all in contradiction to one another? So how can they all be true? In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, Paul wrote, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Pluralism is foolishness. And as a disciple of Jesus, it's an impossibility to say that Jesus was just a man because Jesus being the Christ of God is revealed to us by God the Father. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus responded to Peter after his answer that Jesus is the Christ with this. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The revelation of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God, is not a self-revelation. This is a revelation given to us by God. For us to acknowledge that the conviction of sin, the transformation that happens to us, the conversion that happens to us is from God. It's not a self-thing. It's not something that we've earned on our own. To move from unbelief to belief only happens through God. It's not something that you just say like, I choose to believe. That's it. You have 
some things, some steps to work towards that. Yes, you have a part in that. You have a partnership in that. But the ultimate revelation is from God. That God revealed that to us. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the father of that demon-possessed boy, he cries out to Jesus and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. How many of us are there? We have a belief, but we also have this unbelief. And, we, and so we have this partnership there. God, I, I, I believe, but I have this unbelieving part too, so help me with that. So if in your heart you have kind of this struggle, you're actually in a really good place. God's working in you. God's working on your heart. So keep going with that. Keep moving with that. And, and it's going to be at this beautiful place of faith. So who is Jesus, whom we've been hearing about, that Herod so eloquently asked? And I can tell you that not everyone is right in their opinions of Jesus, including myself, if the opinions are just from me and not from his word. Because it's laid out to us in his word, in the Bible. So even the things that I say, if they are not based out of the Bible, it's wrong. I cannot make up what Jesus is. Right? We cannot make up what Jesus is for us. It's already kind of there. So it's not what others are making up about it. The the, the Word is there. The Bible is there. Now let's move on to the last section, section 6, to address this grouping topic of who is Jesus. Section 6, beginning in verse 28. Let's go through verse 36. This is known as the transfiguration. And the first section we dealt with addressed Herod's question. The second was Jesus' question. And here in the third section, it's going to be a statement from God the Father as to who Jesus is. Let's just read verses 28 through 31 first. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now what we see here is the glory of Jesus manifest. And we're given this glimpse of what heaven is like, where Moses is there and Elijah is there and Jesus is there. And Jesus, the one to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we also have Moses, whom the law was given to. And we also have Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, appearing with Jesus. So this is just like the all-star trifecta, right? This is them having a powwow, talking about Jesus' departure. And this was, this was something Jesus talked about even before his incarnation in the context of the Trinity. You look at John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So for anyone that is out there telling you that Jesus was created, point them to John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus has always been. Jesus is God. Jesus was not created. And so here we have a glimpse of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus before his incarnation. And then read verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I find verse 32 very funny. Let me read that again. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. This is the manifestation of God's glory. Are we getting this? And, and these guys are asleep. Moses and Elijah are there. 
Elijah is left a seat every Passover, hoping that he's going to come back in. These guys are Jewish guys. These are Jewish boys. They're anticipating Elijah, yet Elijah is there and they are asleep. This is like putting the top three guys in your field, whatever that field is. Say you're an athlete. You're an athlete, and there before you is Wayne Gretzky, Muhammad Ali, and Michael Jordan. And so you, you, can, you can talk to them and ask them any questions and all this kind of stuff. And if there was a time to be awake, it's then. But where do we find these guys? They're asleep. And if you're looking at the Jewish faith in terms of like, who do you want to meet with? Moses and Elijah, they're up there. You know, the pound for pound brackets, they're up there. And so, the reason I find this funny is because there are those people that enjoy sleeping during my sermons. It's usually not in the evening service, so I'm going to give you guys credit for that. It's usually in the morning. I think maybe coffee hasn't kicked in or what. I don't know why that is. But it's when we're sharing the Word of God. The Word of God. If at any time you're supposed to be awake, I think it's then. And it's not just literature, it's the Word of God. But some people especially like to sleep during this time. And some of them regularly. I'm going to fill you in on what happens in the morning service since you guys don't know. There are some people in there who snore. There are some people in there who breathe really heavy. But my favorite are the people who talk. I find them very entertaining. It's like, maybe the Lord's going to speak to you. And I'm going to hear something and just encouraging or whatever. I, I, I like that stuff. But I think that those guys, they just might have found their justification for sleeping in church right here. Right, so, that being a sleepyhead, they're just following the example of the disciples. So I'm not going to give them a hard time anymore. And I'm going to let them live their life in a biblical way. And so that's the end. I'm not going to mention that again. They can sleep. Verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master... It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I find this one interesting too because Luke kind of writes all this stuff and then he ends it with not knowing what he said. I, I don't know. I find it funny. But this is so typical of Peter, isn't it? Peter has foot and mouth disease and this is, this is just how Peter is. But actually this is also pretty neat of Peter because if anything, Peter at least recognized that he had some reverence. He had some respect that Jesus, Moses, Elijah, yeah, you guys have your tents. He didn't say, hey, let's make four tents. I'm going to be one of them too. I'm the first pope. So let's, let's put this tent here and let's do this. He didn't do that at least. That, that's, that's good. But at the same time, what's disturbing is that Peter still didn't recognize the grand plan that Jesus was to go to Jerusalem, go to the cross, and not establish himself on that mountain. And if he was awake for that, he would have heard that conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. He, he would have known that. He would have understood that. And I wonder if he wasn't in slumber during that time, if he wouldn't have been in slumber in the Mount of Olives either, and he would have been ready. I wonder. I wonder how much we are asleep. And because of our, our, our sloth and because of our not being awake, how much we really miss out on when God kind of comes by. Verse 31, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus speak about his departure and what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem, and Peter doesn't get it. Verses 34 through 36, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when they heard the voice, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The first question we addressed was from Herod, and it was, Who is this about whom I hear such things? The second question was from Jesus himself, and he's, he was asking, Who do you say that I am? And Peter hits the nail right on the head. He says, You are the Christ. He gets it right on. And then God the Father tells us who Jesus is. Acknowledging that, yeah, you're right, Peter. But he's also telling us, Jesus, he's my son. He's the chosen one. Listen to him. Now, there are some Old Testament references that we don't have time to take a look at. But if you're taking notes, I'm just going to throw these out to you so that you can look at them for yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And you can also read Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So back to our first question, who is Jesus? And in summary from those sections, sections 2, 4, and 6, he is someone to be heard. He is the Christ. He is God's son. He is the chosen one. Listen to him. Now let's move on to our second question. Who is a disciple? And we're going to look at sections 1, 3, and 5 now. And we're going to start out by looking at verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now we know from Luke chapter 4 verse 43 what the purpose of Jesus was to be. And it was this. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And so here we have Jesus sending out the disciples out to do something that he has been doing. He has been fulfilling his purpose, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the good news. Now he is sending his disciples to, the, to do that. That even though Jesus and his disciples, they were casting out demons, they were curing diseases, they were healing people. The ultimate purpose was to proclaim the kingdom of God. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And as disciples of Jesus, we are to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is our primary duty. This is our primary charge. And so sure, God may equip us to do other things to serve the needs of others. We believe strongly in social justice here. We believe strongly in serving our community and reaching the people that are underserved. We believe strongly in that. But the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God is the primary objective. It's not the other way around. And people are in desperate need of the good news of the kingdom of God, not of religion. Because religion does not heal. Religion does not cure disease. Religion does not have spiritual power. It's our relationship with God that gives us those things. It's not the religion that gives us those things. And it's about an invitation to the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's our charge. That is what's given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to give. Anybody can give food. Anybody can give drink. Anybody can give clothing. We do not have to be Christians to do that. It is the Christian that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do something more than that, and it's to share the kingdom of God, to share the, God's love with people. And it's not simply about discussing. It's not simply about accumulating more knowledge. It's about transformation, conversion within our own hearts. 
And it's funny how in subjects of injustice, whether whatever that injustice piece is, whether it's the education disparities that we face, the sex trafficking, the food justice issues, uh, poverty, homelessness, uh, refuge outreach, persecution of people groups, uh, natural disasters, anything, whatever the issue that we're discussing about, does the discussion change anything? Does us talking about it change anything? Does gaining more knowledge, being educated about something, change anything? It doesn't. Discussing things, knowing about things, getting educated about things, it doesn't change anything if we don't do anything with that knowledge and with that discussion. It's just talk. It's just stuck in our minds. Transformation doesn't happen without us exercising what we've been talking about exercising what we've been gaining in our heads. It doesn't do us any good. It's not any good to just be educated. Then what? So you've read a lot. So you've done a lot of experiments, and you know a lot of things. But if you stop at education, if you stop at discussions, it's actually just a total waste. All you have to do is look at Herod. He knew a lot. He's a smart guy. Gained a lot of knowledge. Talked with a lot of smart people. Knew a lot about Jesus. Jesus is silent. I'm going to share with you some stats. The trafficking in persons reports that more than 1 million children enter the sex trade every year. 14,500 to 17,500 women and children are trafficked in the United States each year. Every day, more than 100,000 people live lives of forced labor, involuntary, domestic servitude, sex trafficking, bonded labor, forced child labor, child soldiers, and debt bondage amongst migrant laborers in cities like Oakland. The U.S. Department of State estimates that about 600,000 to 800,000 people, mostly women and children, are trafficked across international borders annually. An estimate that does not include those trafficked within national borders. According to the Initiative Against Sexual Trafficking report, 700,000 to 4 million women, children, and men are trafficked each year worldwide with no region unaffected. What good is that if all we did was talk about it? What What good is that if all we did was just accumulate it in our knowledge so that we could share and talk about it? What good is talking and knowing about it if it doesn't transform us to do something about it? This is just an example of one thing. I mean, there's many issues out there. It's the same issue everywhere. And so I know that for our church, if you are concerned about the things that we are actually doing, because we're actually doing quite a bit, we can talk about that some other time. But you look at verses 1 and 2 as to how the disciples were effective in their work. What happened there? He called them. He gave them power and authority, and he sent them. He didn't keep them to himself and further discuss. He didn't keep them to himself and further lecture them and teach them and educate them without them doing something, sending them to go do something. They did great works. But let's not forget that the primary purpose of them doing those works and those healings and those curing of diseases and all that stuff was to tell people that God is king. That the Lord reigns, that God reigns to call people to repentance and acceptance of Jesus as their Savior so that Jesus stands before them. 
And you also notice in verses 1 and 2 that the disciples were out there curing diseases and they were healing people. And this isn't just about the physical well-being of people. This is also the spiritual well-being of people. It's important for us to remember that it's both physical and spiritual well-beings of people. There are some churches that are just focused on the spiritual. And I think that's way off balance. Because how can we tell people about a Savior if they are starving? If they are so cold that they can't even understand what you're saying because they're so cold. How can that happen? And So yesterday at our annual meeting, uh, we had uh, Craig share with us about Cross Streets and how every first and third Friday, the Cross Streets team, they go out into the community and they make these burritos. And these burritos are warm. And these burritos provide sustenance to people who are hungry. So that when they hand the burrito over, that they grab that burrito and they feel that warmth and they have something to eat, they are receptive for us to pray for them. They are receptive to hear something other than without that. Can you imagine? We're here to share with you the gospel of Jesus and how much he loves you. They're shivering and they're hungry. And they're, yeah? Don't you think that they would rather just kind of go back into their sleeping bag than have you kind of disturb them in coming out? There is something to be said for handing over a burrito, a warm one. And for that to nourish them and for that to kind of warm them up their hands, even if it's just for a few minutes. Now when I read verse 3, this is going to sound funny to you. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Well, that, that's just contradictory. How can you bring out a burrito with you now? Aren't, aren't we supposed to go out and bring nothing for it with us? That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not a literal thing. What Jesus is essentially saying here is he's saying, travel light. Travel light. He's telling his disciples at that time and at that place, live simply Travel light, trust God. You know, you don't have to have everything ready. You don't have have everything prepared for you. You can just go out and, and just travel light, trust God, live simply. Now, people who interpret the Bible literally from Genesis to Revelation, they may have a hard time with this. They're like, no, God said, you know, for our journey, no staff, no bag, no nothing, no bread, no money, no nothing. And if you're one of these literalists, I want to ask you to come up after the service and show me the tassels that you're wearing. I want to see the tassels. If you're a literalist, I want to see the tassels. Verse 4, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. If you're a literalist, this is really freeing for ministry. Imagine this. Enter a house, stay there, and leave. You don't have to do any ministering. That's just quite literal. Go to the house, stay there, and leave. But that's not what he's saying. This is not a literal thing. This, this means go to a house, stay there, accept that hospitality. Minister from there, wherever you're at, and, and minister. Use that as a base. And then when you're done with that, leave. But if you read it literally, go to that house, stay in that house. Don't you dare minister to people because that's not what it says. And then leave. Verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. 
Now the shaking of dust from the feet, this was kind of like the rabbinic thought of shaking dust from when you came from a Gentile land into a Jewish land, that you would kind of like pat yourself down. Like, oh, cooties, Gentile cooties. Get, get all that stuff out, get the sandals out, pop them. Okay, all that stuff, I'm walking into Gentile land. I'm walking into Jewish land. Now what Jesus is telling these guys, he's giving them the ideas that, you know, those guys that reject your message... You can enter back into the presence of God. You, you can know that you belong to God. God never lets go of you. Just, you know, dust your, dust your pants off, dust your sandals off. You always belong to God, guys. You know, you don't have to get discouraged. Just, all right, you're going to get a lot of no's. And so just dust them off and, and you belong to God. Verse 6, and they departed and went through villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, how does this first section apply to us? Who is a disciple? A disciple must preach the kingdom of God. That is our charge. A disciple must administer acts of mercy. A disciple must trust God. So those are some things that we as disciples, that those things can apply to us. Now let's go on to section 3, verses 10 through 17. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And it's to further address who is a disciple. So the, this particular miracle appears in all four Gospels. So I, we don't have the time to go into detail about this, but it's going to come up again, and I promise we'll, we'll kind of unpack it further. But this study tonight is more about who is a disciple, and so we're going to kind of take that approach to this, and we're going to use Luke's account for that. Verses 10 and 11. On their return, the, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The apostles come back. They've been working hard. They've been dusting their sandals off, coming back. And, and so Jesus says, hey, guys, let's, let's go off to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It, it, there, nothing's up there. This is, this is the sticks. It's just a time to get away. But, we, but if we read on, we, we read that it's short-lived because the crowds find out where they're going and they're, they're following. Now, look at this with me as, as to how kind and how gentle Jesus is. He welcomed them, spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now, how many of us would be like this after you've kind of sent your guys out, they've worked really hard, they've come back, and you just want to get together with them and you want to love them and stuff like that how many of us would just be like you know guys give us our space just leave us alone for a bit you know we've been serving you guys like day and night non-stop could you just leave us alone and please just i don't want to talk to you but we don't find jesus like this in verse 12, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. This is a very logical thing. The disciples think of a very logical thing. They're like, hey, out in Bethsaida, there aren't any two crossing palm trees. No in and out out there. Right? It's not out there. There's no golden arches. There's no Burger King Davids. Like, there's nothing out there. Nothing to eat out there. 
So before it gets dark, Jesus, we need to send these people away so that they can find lodging and they can find their own food and and take care of their stuff. Let's read on verses 13 through 17. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. When I read this, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated because Pharisees pop up everywhere, right? But I don't read of the Pharisees here. And I think that once they knew that they were going to Bethsaida, the, the Pharisees and the other folks were going, nope, I'm not going out there. There's nothing to eat out there. This, that's silly. So it's like us going to Livermore, right? Like, you, know, you go to Livermore, you get to Pleasanton, you're like, well, time to turn around. Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's, that's Bethsaida out there. It also reminds me of Luke chapter 1, verse 53. Right? Jesus' biological mother says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The feeding of the 5,000 also reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And I just find this really interesting because you recall that the Pharisees, they make a huge deal about the disciples not washing their hands properly, not eating properly, not, not preparing properly. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, Mark chapter 7, verse 5. That was 12 guys. This is thousands of guys. This is 5,000 guys. This is not including children and women. What would the... Pharisees think about this. I mean, they freaked out about the 12. Thousands on a, on a countryside not washing their hands. Ew. It's yucky. Right? It's just that, as my two-year-old would say, that's disgusting. <laughs> and for any of you who don't understand toddler talk, it's disgusting. Goose dusting. I like goose dusting better. Goose dusting, you know? Um, so imagine with me, just the ritually unclean hemorrhaging woman, because I'm sure there's more than just that one hemorrhaging woman amongst thousands with clean people. There are ritually unclean people there, I'm sure. And as far as food prep, ew, right? Thousands of people. And did people pay tithe? Did, did any of them wash? Yes, they were close to the Sea of Galilee, but did all of them go wash? Did they, did they prepare properly? I mean, how many violations of Jewish ceremonial law happen in this one feeding? Thousands. Thousands. I would have loved to see a Pharisee's face during that time. Like, just take them on a boat cruise and like, hey guys, look at that. Ah! Ah! Ah, like they would have just been so disgusted. And when we think of the miracles, many times we focus on the feeding, right? Five loaves, two fish. Oh, that is incredible. I agree. That's a, a, a miracle. But what about this miracle? The miracle 
to have the freedom from religiosity. That thousands of people got to experience that freedom from religiosity. I mean, how amazing is that? Now, the point of the teaching today is to, of this section is to address who is a disciple. How great is it to be free from religion and to focus on relationship with Jesus Christ? That they could focus on relationship with Jesus, breaking bread with Jesus, and not focus on like, do we have to wash our hands? Like, any Pharisees looking around here? And how do, do you pay tithe on this? Or do we do this? Do we have all of our ducks in a row before we eat this bread? And just kind of looking over your shoulder? It's to be a disciple of Jesus, not to be a disciple of religion. The religion, the law, it's not meant to oppress you. And so as people come to Jesus, may we not be the type that says, hey, you got everything right in your life? And you stop smoking, you stop drinking, you start, you start showering, and you know, you start cleaning yourself up before you come in here and track all your dirt in here. Let's not be like that. Let's hand out the food. You didn't wash here, here's some bread. Eat it. As disciples, what we can gain from this text is that we have so little to offer, don't we? We have so little to offer the many people out there. If we just even take a look at Oakland, 400, 500,000 people. And we look at our church and the limited resources we have that it literally sometimes seems like all we have here are five loaves and two fishes. Really. You know, you look at all the stuff that is happening out there. I met with the, the superintendent of Oakland Unified School District last week. Twelve Oakland Unified School District students were killed so far this school year. Twelve. Sixteen were killed last year. Students. And so these big problems out there. And it literally feels to me, I I only got five loaves and two fish. How am I going to address that? People are wondering about education, how bad it is. Some of these kids are worrying about their lives, let alone learning how to add and read. He was telling me stories about how kids in, the, in, in buses, they take a one bus ride and they take it as far as they can go until they hit some rival gang or something like that. Then they have to get off of the bus and they can't walk through the neighborhood. They have to walk all the way around it and catch another bus line to go to school. So they're not in school until about one. And then people are worried about like truancy and things like that when it's just... The guy doesn't want to get killed. It's not that they don't want to go to school. They got on the bus at 7.30 or whatever it was. It's just they don't want to get shot. They don't want to be that statistic of 16 guys last year. And so the the things that we deal with, it just literally feels like, man, all I got is five loaves and two fish. How am I going to address these things? But the thing is, I don't think Jesus would say anything that is that much different to what he said to the disciples on that hill. I think he would say to us, you feed them. Jesus, I, we, I, I only got five loaves and two fish. I know, feed them. You feed them. You feed them. You have them sit down into groups. I'm going to break it up for you and you distribute it. That we feed them with the bread of life. 
And we just keep passing it on. I don't know where it comes from, where our resources come from, where our outreaches come from. I don't know how we do as much as we do. Because when I look at the size of our church, I think we do so much more than what our size would indicate. And I think it's just this distribution that we just keep handing it out. Let's go to section 5, verses 23 through 27. It's the last, last section we're going to cover under who is a disciple. Verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Oftentimes we read this and we just kind of glance by it. I want to challenge us to really take our time and read this. Because this is actually really serious. This involves denying our own desires, our own interests, our own concerns, and agreeing to willingly sacrifice. Agreeing to willingly suffer in order to follow Jesus. Do you feel the weight? Do you feel the depth of that? Because sometimes we, we, we just make light of this stuff, right? We just think like, yeah, you know, my, 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 cross, it, my cross is giving up coffee. Oh, that's such... So hard. I, and I, I do understand that for some of you that is closer to death for you than others. I understand that. I also understand that the cross involves suffering and the denial of self to follow Jesus. And so I understand that the giving up of coffee, it involves suffering for you. I understand that. I understand that giving up of coffee is a denial of self. But does it prevent you to follow Jesus? Does it? And that's what the cross does in that the cross makes a pathway for you to follow Jesus. It, it opens that up for you. Now, for us to get a deeper understanding of this, let's take a look at this from the eyes of the disciples who are hearing this from Jesus. How are they hearing this? What are they hearing? Because what did taking up a cross mean for them? Because if anything, I know that if anything, they would have at least heard about people bearing their cross, if not seen it firsthand. Where a Roman soldier goes over to the house, that person has done something, treason or whatever. Pulls that guy out, straps that cross on their back, and off they go. What does that mean? That means that guy is a dead man walking. That means that guy is not going back to that place. He's done. For us to take up our cross daily means we don't go back to that place, right? Where, where, where we got caught up in our stuff, whatever that stuff is, whatever that sinful muck is. Taking your cross up daily is dying to that stuff and let's move. We're dying to that stuff. I'm, I'm done, right? And so dead men walking the cross on his back was proof of that. That guy is just dead. He's not going back to that. Verse 24, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Please don't selfishly fill your life with the pleasures of this world. Because when you do that, you kill yourself spiritually. And you, by losing your life, by living for Jesus you are going to gain, you're going to save yourself spiritually. The kind of odd thing is that you're going to suffer for that. As a follower of Jesus, you will suffer for that. 
but spiritually you're going to thrive. Now for those of you who are living according to the flesh, I have this awesome quote by an awesome, awesome guy named Dr. Phil. And um, it's a, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Just living according to the flesh, knowing that you do have some spiritual awareness in you. If you have an inkling of spiritual awareness in you, you know that you are spiritually dying when you're living in the flesh. If you don't have that sense in you at all, I pray for you that you haven't reached the Herod status to where Jesus is silent. Verse 25 and 26. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. A question for us. Are we ashamed of God's word? Do we feel that when we admit that we're Christians, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I'm sorry we believe that stuff. Uh, Are we apologetic for who we are? For Christ has called us to be when we stand up for stuff? Like, no, the Bible says this stuff. I'm not going to apologize for that. That's what it says. Why are we apologizing for that? Why are we apologizing for God? If you've followed Jesus for a while and you haven't been baptized, is it because you're ashamed? Like, oh, I don't want to identify myself all that out there in public with everybody. Is that why? Do you not want to give up your life of the flesh because you're ashamed somehow? Oh, you know, my friends, you know, we've been doing this for so long. We've been partying for so long. I've just been living my life this way for so long that, you know, they're going to think I'm weird if I don't do this. My, my boyfriend's going to think that I'm, I'm weird if I don't continue to sleep with him because, you know, we've just always been doing that and he's been accepting me for that. Are you ashamed of God's word and what it says? It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A disciple of Jesus doesn't get up and decide, I'm going to do whatever I want. A disciple of Jesus does what Jesus wants. I'm awake. What do you want me to do, God? And it's not what, that we're, we're sinless. It's not that we're perfect. But do you find yourself stuck in your sin and you have no desire to get out of it? I'm not talking about, like, you know, you've been struggling with that sin over and over again and you just, you don't have the skills or you don't have the support system or you don't have something to help it, but you really want to get out of it. What I'm trying to address is those people that call themselves Christians and you're practicing sin and you just don't care. It's not a big deal. Are you overwhelmed by the things of this world more than you are of the things of the spiritual world? Do things of this fleshly world influence you more than the things of the spiritual realm? See, being a follower of Jesus, it's serious. And yes, there is grace, and yes, there is mercy, but I don't think... That your sin doesn't have a price. It does. The wages of sin is death. Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6, 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you even bother calling me Lord? You're not doing what I'm saying anyway. Don't call me Lord. In Matthew's account, he says that he doesn't know you. You prophesied in his name. You did all these works in his name. I don't know you. 
Verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, there's some debate as to what this means. Uh, We don't have the time to go through each kind of one. But the one that I see most eye to eye with is in reference to the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And let me explain. When Jerusalem fell, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, there were these people alive that were present in 70 AD that were present in verse 27. Because this is 40 years after that, right? This is about 40 years after that. So there are these people that were there standing here who will not taste the death until they see the kingdom of God. Right? 30-ish AD. And then there were these people who were still alive in 30 AD, 40 years later in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed in Roman, and the Romans sacked Jerusalem. When that happened, when the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was sacked, the 12 tribes of Israel fell. What those people saw in 30-ish AD were also 12. 12 disciples. 12 disciples who were the foundation of the church. What's another 12 number that was there? Remember 12 baskets? 12 baskets of bread that were gathered up? 12 baskets of living bread that Jesus distributed and it was there. 12 disciples who were the foundation of the church with 12 baskets of bread to administer to the world the living bread of life. And they were there with Jesus and they understood that the kingdom of God would move forward from there to everlasting life regardless of what happened in 70 AD. That the church of Jesus was going to move forward to who we are even today and this is church's one testament to that. That they would see the kingdom of God. That they saw the kingdom of God move forward from that 30 AD to that point and it didn't matter what happened in 70 AD. So sections 2, 4, and 6, they give us the answers when we ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Sections 1, 3, and 5, they give us the answers to when we're asking, who is a disciple? And so, let's do this in summary. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a prophet to be heard, section 2, verses 7 through 9. And we are his disciples to preach his message and to bring healing. Verses 1 through 6. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the provider of his people, section 4. And we are his disciples who are to be ready with the bread of life for those who are in need of it spiritually and physically, section 3. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the chosen one to whom we are to listen to as addressed by God the Father. He bore the cross. He walked a life of faith. And we as his disciples, we are to take up our cross daily to follow him in his path. And that path is included in terms of suffering, in terms of denial. And we are to be unashamed of him and his words. Section 5. Do we know who Jesus is? Do we know who a disciple is? It's all in these sections. It's all in these six sections in Luke chapter 9. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for Luke. 
who just so beautifully wrote to us what a disciple is and, and who you are, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for any person here who is hearing you, and no matter how faint it is, God, I, I pray that, that that callousness is being removed and they, they don't ignore you. God forbid that it comes a time when you are silent to them, Lord. We know that your grace abounds and we know that your mercy abounds, Lord, but there, there is a partnership in that with us. And as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, may we acknowledge and may we believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.